electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right. Thanks very much, Scott. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans today. And here's what's ahead on The Exchange. OPEC reminding us of its pricing power. We've got a surprise cut sending oil prices sharply higher. We look at the impact on the energy trade, how much higher prices could go from here, and what it does to the Fed's fight against inflation. Plus, what about the impact on technology? The sector's been on an absolute tear, but if the Fed needs to keep raising rates to bring down inflation, could that rally be coming to an end for tech stocks? We look at how to position in that trade right now. And a sudden jump in the home prices after several months of declines. This as inventory keeps shrinking and buyers keep buying up despite higher mortgage rates. So what will break the cycle first? We'll look at the current gridlock in housing and what you need to know if you're thinking about buying or selling right now. But we're going to begin with today's markets right now, largely mixed, but there is certain outperformance, as you're going to see right here in the Dow Industrials, because it's more weighted towards things like oil and energy as opposed to the S&P 500. The Dow is up 215 points, two-thirds of 1%. The S&P 500 still above 4,000, now 4,105, but it's down about just about one-tenth of 1% today. Now, at the highs of the session, we were up 18 points on the S&P, down 11 at the lows, so tilting a little bit more towards that lower end, but still modest moves right now. And the Nasdaq Composite, really the underperformer, as I mentioned, for that tech trade, down about 121 points for the composite, 12,100 the last trade there. That's off about one full percent. One place in the market that is not seeing as much weakness as other parts of the market right now happen to be in certain names like Lamb Weston, Monster Beverage, and Hershey. Each three of these consumer staples stocks hit record highs in trading today. Each of them gets a gold star. They are up. You can see they're anywhere from 17 to 70 percent. But that consumer staples trade is still one where many folks are finding at least a little bit of safe haven, even though some would argue the valuations are high. And then one other place to keep a close eye on, of course, we talked about the oil and gas stocks, energy prices overall. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate Crude now back above 80 bucks. That's about 6 percent gains there. A lot of the exploration and production companies like Marathon Oil, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil within the S&P 500 energy sector, anywhere up from 5 to 9, 10% on the day. The energy sector spider up 4% by far the best performing sector, by far in today's trade. Now, the big question is, why cut now for OPEC? And where do prices go from here? From the impact on the energy market to what you will pay at the pump, we have all of the angles covered. Halima Croft here in studio with us, RBC Capital Markets, head of Global Commodity Strategy. She's also a CNBC contributor. Bob McNally, Rapidan Energy Group founder and president, and our own Brian Sullivan. Brian, we'll begin with you, the man who knows all things oil as our oil and gas reporter. Lay out the big picture for us here. I only know because I read Halima and Bob's work, Dom, so thank you. Uh, Listen, I'll let them do the analysis. I'll just give you the blanket news. I mean, what a surprise. I think 
Some smart person I, I read called it the prince of plot twists. I believe that was a, a woman by the name of Halima Croft who said that. Um, this was a big surprise because OPEC's technical committee, Dom, is meeting today. There was a meeting today, so we thought, oh, maybe Monday we'll get a little news out of this technical committee, maybe not. We wake up on a Sunday and find out that they made this big cut. 1.1 million barrels. If you sort of believe all those barrels will come off, I know Halima does not. You've got another 500,000 barrels from Russia in July. So this could equal 1.6 million barrels, at least on paper. And then, of course, remember, we got that surprise 2 million barrel per day cut back in October. So if you combine all those by the end of July, you could have about 3.6 million off the market. What does that mean? That's about 3.5% of global demand. Now, as to the why, I will let Bob and Halima get into that because you can say, well, maybe they see economic weakness. China's demand is not materialized like some have thought. Or you could go down the D.C. rabbit hole and say that maybe the Saudis were angry with the Biden administration for not refilling the SPR sooner using Saudi oil because the energy secretary last week at a hearing said, quote, it may take years. So you can take the political side or you could take the economic side. Either way, the price of oil just got more expensive. I'm going to say, Brian, that it's an intersection of all of those different things, which is why you're going to stick around and we're going to delve into the reasons why and the how and everything else with Bob McNally and, of course, Halima Croft. So, Halima, we'll start with you. You're sitting right across from me here. It's great to have you in studio, Thank by the way. Thank you for having me back. Okay. So this is, this is the how and the why are intriguing. If you have the analyst hat on and you say, why are they doing this now? There has to be a calculated bet being made by OPEC and its partner countries on whether or not demand will be there because of these supply cutbacks and price hikes, right? I mean, I think what's so amazing is they kept this whole thing a secret. When we had all the concerns about the banking sector, contagion over to physical oil markets, OPEC was quiet. They basically surprised us all coming out on a Sunday, and I think to have maximum market impact. I mean, I read this as putting short sellers on notice. They do not want it to be a one-way macro trade. Like they did in October, they wanted to short-circuit any major macro sell-off going forward. Basically, they're not going to be passengers on the J-PAL Express. They've been very concerned about rate hikes. They see macro uncertainty, but I think they wanted to cement the gains that we were already seeing. So, so in, that, in that case, Bob, if, if this is about bringing price stability back to the marketplace, there has got to be some kind of a reasoning that they're thinking that the world can withstand this, given what still is the remnants of a global banking crisis, although it's abated a little bit. There's still concern about inflation, and there is, of course, still concern about the Fed's efforts to fight it. All of these are headwinds. Why do this now? Well, they probably remember 2008. When just like now, if you look at their oil balances now, Don, uh, they point to an increase in the call on OPEC, million and a half barrels a day, their own numbers. So if you look at their current forecast or anybody else's pretty much, there's no call for a cut. But they remember 2008 when oil prices collapsed from 145 to 35 in six months. And the data analysts caught up with that months later and they ended up cutting late. They cut in November and December of that year after the huge collapse. To Halima's point, this is about being proactive, preemptive. I mean, they didn't, they broke the glass. They didn't quite hit a panic button, but they hit the precaution button and they hit it hard. And they're basically telling the market, we're not going to let this thing get stupid to the downside if we're about to see a big demand deceleration, which right now 
is not in their balance and most people's balances. So it's risk management. So, so okay, first of all, let me just tell viewers right now, I'm watching a lot of nodding and shaking heads going on among all three of our panelists right here. I'm going to turn to Halima first, and then, Brian, I'm going to get to you because I know you're chomping at the bit as well. Halima, Bob mentions 2008, 2009. You were saying, yes, you, you're nodding your head. This is not, though. 2008 and 2009. But the lesson I think they learned from 2008 and frankly 2015 was they did not want to let it go too long. I think there was a view 2014, 2015. Remember they didn't put a floor in and prices collapsed then because of the shale boom? I think they want to show the market that they're simply not going to be passengers. Yes, it was a full year agreement, but they're not going to stay on autopilot for a year. They wanted to show their intention to come back into the market, to be proactive, and at least firm the floor. But many people are optimistic about the back half of the year. So the question is, do they want to put an accelerator on a recovery? Okay, so so let's let's bring this. There are policy implications globally, of course, but a lot of us care about what's going to happen with U.S. policy because it's been such a state of flux over the pandemic and everything else. Brian, I'll turn to you. You've got a, a, your, your fingers on the pulse of a lot of this. A lot of folks right now in the industry and beyond are asking about what this means for U.S. producers, what it means for shale production. Is this enough to change minds in Washington, D.C. and places like in East and West Texas where there are oil people who are thinking to themselves, is this the right way to go about catalyzing U.S. production? I think they would. It's a good question. There's a lot of questions in there. Bob could certainly tackle the D.C. side, Dom. I think the people in West Texas and eastern New Mexico and Williston, North Dakota, will just say, "Okay, if I had more people, if I had access to capital, if I had more people, more trucks, more frac sand, I might be able to produce more. Now, let's be clear. Production has gone up. We're not at the the record highs. We hit 13 million barrels a day back in December of 2019. We're not there yet. We are slowly creeping up. Is there a max production capacity just based on all those things I just mentioned? There might be. If it is, are we at it? We might be. Higher prices certainly would be some sort of an enticement, obviously, to do that, Dom. But again, uh, you're going to hear a lot of, I guarantee you, we're going to hear a lot of talk, uh, a lot of probably rage right now in the White House at OPEC, at this move. This is the higher prices at a time when inflation had just started to tick down a little bit. And it's not just about paying more at the gas pump. It's about all the input costs that petroleum goes into, whether it's for a, a jet fuel, for a, your airline ticket, cruise ship fuel, truckers costs that they then have to pass along. Probably we're going to see a 15 to 20 cent jump in the price at the pump from this based on about a 5 to 7% move. I think that's about how it's going to impact consumers as well. I will note this, though. The natural gas prices are actually just at 2 bucks. They actually went down because the idea being, well, if we pull out more oil, we're going to pull out more gas, and we already have too much gas. So I'm trying to find a little sully side up on that story. But I can tell you right now, and Halima and Bob, I'm sure will echo this, there's not a lot of happy faces in the White House right now. I'm sure there's not. And so, Bob, let's, let's throw that to you from a policy perspective. Uh, there, there, there's an argument to be made that this is a chance, and what we've seen over the last year with oil prices and fuel prices spiking, it's shown just how sensitive Americans are to rising energy costs. Is it enough, this kind of a move, to prompt administration officials or the government writ large to focus more on U.S. energy independence and oil production? 
Well, I don't think it'll move the Biden administration too much further than it's already gone. I mean, they did the Willow Project. They're softening up a little bit. But no, I think they're terrified, though, from the Fed through the White House to the Capitol Hill. And in Paris at the IEA, I'm sure they're serving, you know, Valium with the foie gras over there. Because if you look at the existing balances for the IEA, they were looking at one and a half, two million barrel a day deficits before this cut. You add in a one million barrel a day additional cut and you're going to get prices that'll sail through $100 a barrel at high speed. Now, again, OPEC plus is taking a precaution against a demand deceleration, different scenario. But if you're a Western, if you're an Indian consumer, if you're the IEA, anybody in Washington, and you're looking at the existing balances, including OPEC's and what they just did, you're, you're, you're getting ready to dust off policy options. What are they real quick? SPR releases? Certainly. Uh, restricting product export restrictions. They looked at that last summer in Washington. They do that again. Uh, requiring companies to hold minimum stocks of gasoline on the East Coast. They could look at that as well. And then there's always the NOPEC bill. So there's a tool chest. Uh, and if prices go higher, and I think they're, take, they're they're being cool for now, right? They're downplaying it. They're very soft in their response. They learned job owning OPEC doesn't help. But there's a toolkit. And if prices roof this spring and summer, they're going to dive into it. Okay, so Halima, we're going to give you the last word. I'd like you to put on your former CIA analyst hat on. What does this do to stability economically, financially around the world, given what OPEC Plus has just done? The question is, where are prices coming to summer when we get you know, driving season in the U.S.? I would say we focus so much on the implications for the U.S., but think about these OPEC producers. Last year was really the first year that many of these countries were in the black after the lean years and prices collapsed. And so you have a whole host of oil producers, particularly Saudi Arabia, that have their own very ambitious development programs. And so higher prices do work for certain key parts of the world. We shouldn't forget that. All right. Halima Croft, Bob McNally, and Brian Sullivan, thank you all very much for our very intriguing roundtable on OPEC+. Plus. Uh, and if you can, by the way, get even more Sully tonight on Last Call, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You don't want to miss it. He's going to tackle, I'm sure, all of these energy questions as well. Well, from the impact on the energy market to the economy, our next guest says OPEC+, Plus just made the Fed's fight against inflation even more complicated. Sure sounds like it. Joining me now is David Zervos, the chief market strategist over at Jefferies. CNBC's senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us as well. Uh, Steve, we'll start with you to lay out the picture for the economic uncertainty that already was and how much more uncertain it got for the Fed because of what just happened with OPEC+. Yeah, um, I'm going to be like uh, in volleyball. I'm going to set this one up for Zervos here with just one chart, I think, shows the back and forth on this. Guys in the back, if you could call up that January 24 Fed funds contract, it really shows the uh, really schizophrenia of the market the last couple days. Take a look at the, at the surge up on Sunday night that came with the outlook for the Fed as a result of OPEC. That's that bit right over Monday right there. And then the surge down in the outlook for rates that came with the ISM manufacturing. That I don't know what you want to call that, a MESA, to, for lack of a better term, Dom. But that's it. It was it, 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 they, they, they saw more Fed with the OPEC, and then they saw less Fed with the ISM. And right now it looks like the outlook for the economy is trumping the outlook for inflation and concern over this OPEC um, uh, cutback. Okay, so, so David, this is a, a very tough spot, I, I guess the best way to put it for the Fed right now. 
if in fact we are seeing what Steve has just laid out in terms of the kind of maybe convergence or divergence in certain parts of the financial markets because of this, what is the Fed going to do, I, I guess, is the big question. So, Dom, I think the, the story Steve laid out is right in terms of the ISM kind of uh, basically coming in and giving people a lot more confidence, particularly the prices paid look, looked quite good below 50, but everything was kind of moving in the Fed's direction. Uh, and, and the other thing I would say just on your whole oil discussion is let's not get too caught up in the front contract. If we look at you know, the end of December of 2024, oil's only up about a buck and a half today. So I think this is a probably a shorter term spike, at least the market is telling you that. And remember, the Fed looks at this as a very long-term story. They're not thinking about inflation over the next month or the next two months. They're thinking about it over the next two, three, four quarters and years. And one of the, the great pieces of news that came out last week even was the University of Michigan survey which I'm sure Steve talked about uh, last week, showing the one-year inflation expectations down at levels we haven't seen since April of 2021 when, when inflation first started to surge, and the long-term inflation never went up. So, uh, again, I, I think there's some good news for the Fed. This oil story is definitely going to complicate things. I would say the most interesting thing on the Fed, Dom, at the moment is they sort of pulled back from the 50 because of SVB, and a lot of people are looking at SVB and kind of going, well, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't nearly as important as we thought it was. It was much more about some bad regulation and some bad investment committee decisions at one very large bank, but it's not an endemic or systemic issue. And that, I think, is going to be an interesting debate this time around at the Fed meeting. Steve, it's an excellent point here. It wasn't that long ago that you and I were both on together talking about how this could be one of those, in fact, effective interest rate hikes, the global banking crisis, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Has it done some of the work for the Fed for it? But it seems like nobody's really talking about the contagion effect of regional banks as much as they were just one to two weeks ago. So is that getting less complicated for the Fed? No, I'm a little traumatized, I have to admit, Don, by previous experience in that I'm always a little afraid to sound the all clear because these things have a way of operating like a wave that comes by you and then it kind of hits you on the backside. So I'm, I'm a little uh, uh, behind the market in saying everything is OK. Uh, but you are right that the last week or so, it looks like things are more quiet. The, um, uh, the, the recent uh, Fed report showing that the flow out of the banks is uh, um, less than it had been. The takedown of lending at the Fed is lower than it had been. But I'll tell you who's talking about this is not so much in a, in a sense of systemic risk as much as the knock-on effect of credit tightening. We did our uh, CNBC rapid update looking at GDP. And what you see is this impact in the uh, quarters of the second half of the year where the first half looks okay and it's the second half, Dom, where we're showing these negative quarterly numbers. You can see that they were looking for modestly positive or just barely positive. Now it's pretty solidly negative. And a lot of the commentary I'm reading from forecasters, Dom, is because of the potential knock-on effect of credit tightening, not systemic risk. All right, so credit tightening is one thing. Uh, David, we'll give the final word to you here. This is something where the Fed, yes, has to take it into account. Has it changed your forecast? about when and where, if and when a recession were to happen here in the United States? And if so, 
How deep does it go? Again, Dom, I, I think the oil story, while interesting and definitely will get the Fed's attention and probably at the margin, uh, has their inflation radars a little heightened. I think the fact that the back month contracts haven't moved that much uh, and 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 uh, you, you really, uh, as I think uh, Sully pointed out, you've seen things like gas go the other way. I think they're going to take a little consolation from that and it's not going to play as much into the calculus as you would have thought Sunday night when everything kind of ripped up and we were moving 10 or 15 basis points higher in those January Fed funds contracts that, that Steve was showing earlier. So I, I think I think it's a, a little it was a little bit of an overreaction and the ISM kind of took it all out. And I think the bigger story is much more uh, what Steve and I were just discussing is how big and how important is this credit tightening? And the market's very divided on that. And we'll learn a lot more about it as time goes on. What happened with the Fed balance sheet last week on Thursday was great news, though. And it really shows that things are not heating up any further than they already heated up. So I take that as a positive. All right. An incremental step, perhaps in the right direction. David Zervos, our own Steve Leisman. Thank you, gentlemen, both very much. We'll see you soon. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, coming up on the show, only a handful of big tech stocks make up most of the market's gains so far this year. So can that continue? And if so, which names are poised to outperform? We've got Evercore ISI's Mark Mahaney joining us next to discuss that trade in big tech. Plus, Omega's Leon Cooperman says he's not surprised by the recent rally, but he says don't trust it. Is he right? We'll debate it. And as we head out to break, let's get a quick check on the markets right now. Again, a more mixed picture. Still, though, outperformance in the Dow and underperformance in the Nasdaq. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Throughout the recent bank turmoil, tech has proven remarkably resilient. The Nasdaq is up 16% so far this year and coming off its best quarterly performance since the pandemic market rebound in the second quarter of 2020. And it's not just the Nasdaq. Essentially, all S&P 500 gains last quarter can be attributed to just five. Yes, five mega cap stocks. We are talking NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, Tesla and Meta. But can those gains continue, especially with the Fed's fight against inflation just getting more complicated thanks to OPEC and its partner countries. So joining me now is Mark Mahaney, head of Internet Research at Evercore ISI. Uh, Mark, it's a confusing story, 
but one that maybe doesn't seem so terrible given the fact that it's muscle memory. Tech has been an unbelievable momentum trade since the depths of the great financial crisis. Does it continue that way? Well, I'm not sure about all tech, but you know, the, given the drubbing that most tech growth stocks had last year, for a lot of which for good reasons, that was an interesting setup on the long side. We, we called ourselves tactically constructive. You had estimates de-risk, multiples de-risk. And what's new to tech, by the way, is uh, layoffs. We've had a broadest or deepest range of layoffs across tech. And what that creates is these EPS slingshot opportunities. So these companies clearly uh, most of them, uh, many of them, clearly overbuilt, overhired post the COVID uh, peak. And as they took out those costs and as they've kind of matured into their growth a little bit, uh, it's time to take costs down and they're doing that. So it just makes the free cash flow stories greater. Levels of innovation are probably as good or greater. We've got this massive AI way that we're all trying to figure out, but you can do it on a lower cost basis. So the, a lot of good, re the reasons that you like tech in the past should be there now, except that there's the free cash flow is a greater king than it was back in the past, greater king or queen. And so that's a, that's a good thing. So there's good reasons to be able to stick with tech. Now, my favorite tech names, I've put Meta at the top of that list, even though it's, uh, even though it's had a big rally. It's still extremely cheap, I would argue. Okay. So, so if Meta is that play, Meta, I, I can think of other stocks that, that kind of bottomed out, at least for the time being last year. Netflix is one of those types of names. There's been this kind of buy the dip trade. I, I guess the question now is, has it run its course, given the fact that interest rates are now a part of the discussion to the upside yet again? Um, I, I don't think it's run its course, but it depends on the company. So, look, the reason I, one of the reasons I like Meta is I know it's up 70% year to date, but hold on. It's trading at 13 times earnings. It's actually the cheapest quality tech name out there. It's the cheapest internet stock, but it's the cheapest quality internet out there, uh, tech name out there. You look at free cash flow, EBITDA, or, get, or plain old-fashioned gap earnings. So that's why I think it can still run. It's got some great product cycles. In this environment, you want companies that have got product cycles. You mentioned Netflix. Netflix has got one. It's the rollout of this basic with ads, the ad model that it took years kicking and screaming to finally adopt. But they've adopted it. So that's your product cycle there. There are other names that I like in the consumer internet space, Amazon and Google, but I'm a little bit more cautious on them near term. I think numbers need to come down one more time. Whereas I think names like Meta and Netflix, you can have upwards estimates revisions with reasonable stock prices. Those stocks can still work. Now, you mentioned Amazon. I just like to hit that only because it maybe acts as a kind of indicator or bellwether for many parts of the economy, the retail side of things, the health of the consumer, staples versus not discretionary. Is Amazon one of those stocks that has the ability to find a catalyst in the next, say, quarter or two to get it materially moving to the upside. What would those have to be in your mind for Amazon to kind of resume an uptrend as opposed to kind of finding itself where it is right now? We haven't had an uptrend in Amazon stock in about two years. I think it's actually the large, longest period of underperformance uh, I've seen on Amazon stock in well over a decade. So there's a lot of things at play here, but I think the nearest, the near term, the biggest sort of debate on Amazon stock is when is AWS's growth going to stabilize? And when are the margins at AWS going to stabilize? We're going through an optimization cycle uh, when it comes to cl uh, cloud computing, not just uh, AWS, but Azure, Google Cloud, et cetera, Oracle, et cetera. 
And so we need to get to the other side of that. I think the other side is at the earliest, the back half of this year. But when that growth rate starts to stabilize at, uh, at AWS, then I think Amazon stock can very nicely outperform because I think the retail business is now in a better place versus all those dramatic costs that they had to deal with last year, inflation costs, fuel, shipping, labor, et cetera. That's all started to normalize. So the retail business, we think, is fine unless we have a severe recession in the back half this year. Hopefully not. Uh, but it's the, it's the AWS, it's the cloud computing business that needs to stabilize first for Amazon to work. All right. Top pick from Mark Mahaney. It's Meta Platforms. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, Mark. Thanks, Tom. All right. Plus, now we got home prices back on the rise. Speaking of things that are going up in value, after some wild swings in mortgage rates, but one housing expert says don't expect gridlock in the market to improve anytime soon. He'll join us later on to explain. And as we head out to break... Take a look at the Dow heat map with Chevron. No shock there. UNH and Merck leading the way higher. Salesforce, Microsoft, and Nike are among the worst performers in the Dow. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now still in the green for the Dow, up about 237 points. Now, at the highs of the session, we were up 358 to kind of give you some context about what's happening. On the stock side of things, Tesla is having its worst day since January after the company's first quarter delivery numbers fell short of some analyst expectations. Those shares, by the way, are still up 58 percent so far this year. Tesla down 7% today. Elsewhere, Extra Space Storage is buying REIT competitor Life Storage Real Estate Investment Trust in in an all-stock transaction that values the combined company at around $36 billion. Their merger would create the country's biggest storage facility operator in terms of locations with over 3,500 of them. Extra Space down 5%. They're the acquirer. Life Storage up 3.5%. They're getting bought. Now let's send over to to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. All right, Dom. Let's uh, give you the CNBC News update at this hour. The Japanese Defense Ministry holding an opening ceremony for the country's latest ground self-defense military base. 570 personnel will be deployed to that new base that has the capability to attack an enemy ship from land. The opening of the base, located less than 200 miles from Taiwan, comes amid escalating tension in the East China Sea. Back in the U.S., former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson planning to run now for president in 2024. The Republican politician will make a formal announcement later this month. Hutchinson also calling on current GOP frontrunner former President Donald Trump to drop out of the race in the wake of the indictment against him. And meanwhile, former Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance is warning Trump that he could face further legal trouble if the former president threatens New York's judicial system. Vance uh, is the man who began the investigation that led to Trump's indictment and made the comments as the former president calls for a new judge to be appointed for his trial. 
Dom, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much for the news update there. Coming up on the show, bank turmoil, inflation. There have been a lot of headwinds for the market lately, but you wouldn't know it looking at the recent stock market rally. The question is, will the rally last? Leon Cooperman says no, but we will debate it coming up next. the exchange. Stocks are rallying at certain parts of the market today, despite OPEC Plus's production cuts, renewing inflation worries. And despite headlines over the past month, banks in crisis, sustained interest rate hikes, and now higher energy prices, all three major averages are higher during that period. But Omega's Leon Cooperman isn't putting too much faith in those gains. Here's what he said on Squawk Box just earlier this morning. Generally, market bottoms are made on bad news, not tops. So I'm not surprised about the rally, but I think it's kind of running its course. Run its course. So says Leon Cooperman. So how should you position now? Let's bring in Stephen Whiting, chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Management Investments, and then Peter Bookfar, chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial. He's also a CNBC contributor. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here with us. Uh, Stephen, I'll maybe throw it out to you first. Leon Cooperman. I mean, he says what he says. He's got a view. Is this the right time for people to be feeling a little safer about the markets or is there still caution to be had? Look, when you've had some negative events and there's a lot of apprehension, the rebounds from this can be fairly strong. Yet at the same time, what we think is that the economy has a price to pay to keep the Fed on hold. Right. If you've taken down the expected Fed funds rate for mid-year by 100 basis points, right, there should be something that's going on here. And we think, again, markets are pricing in uh, probably too high a probability that we can have strong growth and Fed easing at the same time. So these are concerns for us, particularly when we look at the mid part of the year, the April through June quarter, where earnings estimates show a sharp rise from the first quarter. We think that the economy is going to be in a lull in that period. And if it isn't, it can bring the Fed back in. So, so Peter, the, the interesting disconnect here is, is markets versus maybe you could argue some of the economic data versus where you can argue the Fed wants to be in terms of policy. Is it dire? I mean, should we expect material weakness in the economy? Who's got it right in, in this situation? Well, I, I think it's not going to be dire, but we're on the cusp of a recession, if not like in one. And the banking situation just tips us right over because of the presence that small and uh, regional, mid-sized regional banks have in lending to small and medium-sized businesses. So the economy was on a fragile state to begin with. And if you break it down, U.S. manufacturing is in a recession. Housing essentially is in a recession. It's really, and capital spending is slowing. So it's just the consumer that's sort of holding things up. But even the consumer is now bifurcated, depending on where you want the income scale and, and how sensitive you are to this trend in inflation. Uh, so to me, it, it's going to be a messy earnings season. Um, we're going to see continued degradation in profit margins, which would then lead to potentially a uh, pickup in, in firing as companies try to regain some profit margins. I mean, that's the next shoe here. We've seen layoffs in tech. Is McDonald's the beginning that, okay, maybe there's some rationalization, even though it's small for McDonald's, but other companies are going to start to revisit their labor forces? So there's a lot to play out here uh, as the year progresses in the economy. One of the things, Stephen, over the course of the last several weeks that, that many traders have been taking note of is the 
real outperformance in the NASDAQ so far year to date versus, say, the Russell 2000 small cap. Okay, and they say that that divergence, if you show a chart of the Russell 2000 versus the NASDAQ so far this year, it tells you a story about where the fear is and where the economic expectations are. Small cap companies don't fare as well in economic downturns. Is that what we should expect? Does that market have it right? Well, that's where we're positioned. If you think about leveraged cyclical companies, companies that don't have the resources, uh, again, on their balance sheet to survive a cycle, you would find that a lot of them are smaller cap companies. Uh, And if you'd find those that have the strongest balance sheets in some uh, non-cyclical industries, you'd probably want to uh, migrate to large cap software, for example. So again, how that is played out in markets makes a bit of sense. How far it will go is really important uh, going further. But just as Peter said, banks are an important part of lending in the economy. It's not just the high-yield bond market. It's not just high-grade. We were seeing tightening lending standards in every single loan category before the turmoil, turmoil began. And the Federal Reserve recognizing this or reacting to it is not by itself going to make it go away. Right. So we would think, again, commercial real estate exposure, even inventory building activity uh, that you would expect from commercial industrial loans for smaller companies and real in the small business sector. This is going to be a period where it's harder to grow. Has it created and I'll just follow up really quickly here. Has it created the, the economic stresses, opportunities and places you mentioned high yield before? It's held up relatively well. Not enough dislocation in the market for this. Markets, again, always looking past. And looking past may be fine, but if you're looking for a big upturn in earnings and you've already priced it in, that's the problem. It's, again, the same conditions for recovery are leading to a a more uh, strong market right now. So, again, the very thing that you would discount in a recovery period, we've already been enjoying it. It's uh, dislocations like the market for banks. I've seen a large drop in prices, but industrial machinery outside of energy. We can talk about OPEC outside of a few other areas where we still have problems. Uh, but uh, everything associated with the construction cycle, we have, uh, you know, share prices near all time highs as opposed to the banks. All right. So last word to you, Peter, if you take everything that we've talked about into account, there's got to be a positioning play here. What's the opportunity in the next, say, six months? Well, to me, the tech rally has been textbook okay, the Fed's almost done, let's buy tech. Not, for, not remembering that all of tech's customers, small and medium-sized businesses in particular, are going to be suffering. So I, 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 sell tech is, is, is an answer to your question, and I think the energy stocks are still cheap, even with the rally today, uh, and we're pretty bullish on long energy stocks. All right. Peter Bookvar, Stephen Whiting at City. thank you both very much for being here. And for sharing your thoughts. Uh, Coming up on the show, a good salary doesn't necessarily translate into good money skills. We'll take a look at the impact of company-sponsored financial literacy benefits and initiatives on both employees and employers' bottom lines. That story is coming up next for this Financial Literacy Month in April. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. While health insurance and retirement savings are important workplace benefits, many companies are now also offering financial education benefits for employees. CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson joins us now with that story and the impact that it's having. And by the way, Sharon, our parent company, 
also offers financial literacy, just to kind of put things in perspective. Absolutely. You know, April is Financial Literacy Month, but financial education is not just for kids. In a new CNBC Momentum survey, 58% of adults say they are now living paycheck to paycheck, including a third of people who make six figures. Edwina Irvin was living paycheck to paycheck until she took advantage of an employee assistance program that taught her how to deal with debt. It helped me work out a way to manage it better so that I had a balance between what I needed to pay and what I needed to live. About 20% of employers offer non-retirement financial advice as a workplace benefit. Verizon, where Irvin works, is one of them. The focus that you have on financial benefits, how has that changed over the last couple of years? The traditional focus on financial wellness, which was almost exclusively around the 401k, is just not sufficient anymore. Our employees are asking for help with all aspects of their financial life. Research shows in the last year, employees who had access to financial education and tools like videos, classes, and coaching were more likely to increase savings, feel less overwhelmed by debt, and make progress toward their financial goals. Financial literacy advocate Laura Levine says providing those resources through the workplace may not reach the most vulnerable employees. If it's an opt-in, you sometimes miss the people who need this because they're worried that if they take the course or take advantage of what's being offered, that people will judge them for what they don't know. Irvin wishes she had learned more about budgeting and financial planning much earlier for herself and her family. We struggled a very long time unnecessarily because we didn't have the knowledge or tools or skills to do what we would need to do to make things better. Once she went through the employee assistance program, Irvin raised her credit score, bought a house, and now helps her parents with their finances. And research shows employees who use financial education benefits are more loyal to their employers, leading to better retention and greater engagement at work. So, so I mean, it's not a surprise. I mean, if, if you are more if you succeed more financially in, a, in the environment that you're in, you tend to kind of stay in that environment for longer. Exactly. I, I, I guess with that all being said, is there any one important lesson, I guess, that can be learned by employees and maybe by extension all adults with regard to financial literacy? Well, there has been a lot of research on what do we know and what don't we know. And one of the most important financial lessons is actually comprehending risk, which can lead to issues if you don't understand it about mounting debt, as well as investing appropriately for your financial future. So risk is a topic that adults have consistently had difficulty grasping. And that's according to an annual financial literacy survey by George Washington University and the TIA Institute. And I'll delve more into the impact of assessing risk in retirement savings in particular and closing the racial wealth gap with TIAA CEO Tashonda Brown Duckett tomorrow, April 4th, at CNBC's Equity and Opportunity Forum. It starts at 3 p.m. Eastern time, and you can register at cnbcevents.com. I'm really looking forward to doing this event with you, Dom. Yes, tomorrow. we're going to have some fun collaborating on this particular equity and opportunity event. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow, Sharon. Absolutely. All right. We'll still ahead on the show. After several months of declines, home prices are back on the rise. What's behind the reversal and what it means for the spring housing season, the all-important spring housing season? That's coming up next. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. For the first time in seven months, home prices are actually on the rise. 
New data out from Black Knight showing that nearly 80% of the 50 largest U.S. markets saw an uptick this February, the strongest single-month gain since going all the way back to last May. And that's thanks in part to lower mortgage rates, which had buyers rushing to take advantage if they could. The rate on the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is down more than 7% over the last month. Tough percent on percent, I know. But still, though, it's up since the beginning of February. So what do these wild swings in interest rates and everything else mean for the spring housing season? It's important. Let's dive into that with Black Knight's Andy Walden. He's the vice president of enterprise research and, of course, our very own Diana Olick, senior real estate correspondent. Diana, I'm going to turn to you first for the bigger story here before we get into Andy. This is a very important time for the real estate market. It's spring. How is it shaping up? Well, it seems like there's a lot of competition out there, and it was actually really surprising to see the competition come in the early part of the year, that is January and February. Remember, we saw that big sales number in February jump 14.5%. Those were contracts signed in December and January, and that was all because mortgage rates dropped down from their highs of October. So we started to see a lot of buyers come back in, and all that competition, I'm guessing, is what put the pressure back under prices again. I mean, we went to several open houses in different cities in February. And while everyone was concerned alike about mortgage rates rising, they all said the same thing. There's still tons of competition out there and too little supply. So we were actually talking about the possibility of prices go up. And look at that. They did. Dom. And it's not just the price. So, so the, 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 Andy, this is a crazy price dynamic. It's a vicious cycle if you want to look at it in that way. It all depends on perspective, right? If there's little supply of housing on the market, it doesn't matter when it comes on, it gets snapped up at whatever the asking price is, and it just kind of keeps feeding on itself. What exactly can break the cycle? Yeah, and that's really the challenge that we face this year. Is it's, it's as much about the supply side as it is the demand side, right? If you look at rate lock volumes in our Optimal Blue platform, they've returned a little bit, but they're still running 10 to 15% below what they traditionally would be at this point in the year. So you can tell that the affordability constraint is still weighing on on demand out there in the market. At the same at the same time, we've seen supply fall for now five consecutive months. We're seeing almost half the level of inventory that we should. 90% of markets are moving in the wrong direction in terms of inventory. And so you're right. I mean, there, there's lower levels of demand than, than you traditionally would see this time of year, but it's bumping up against even lower supply and it's causing these prices to harden. I, okay, so this is something that a lot of homeowners in America, especially those, Andy, that have refinanced mortgages or purchased homes, call it four to five years ago, when interest rates were low. Many of those people are now saying to themselves that they are not going to move because what do they expose themselves to? Having to find another place at a higher price with a higher interest rate on their mortgage. So what exactly gets more supply on market if I and everybody else wants to stay in their homes because we have a lower carrying cost if we've done it in the last five years? Yeah, yeah and it's especially the last couple of years, right, when rates were down in the sub 3% range. And that, that's, the, that's the big question that the market is grappling with right now, and, and there's not a simple answer, right? The, there's a very clear path on, on the demand side of how that gets back to normal, and you've seen that ebb and flow as rates have moved. So when interest rates got down near 6%, you've seen that demand return. You haven't seen interest rate movement, at least to date, impact sellers' willingness to sell. And it's just gotten worse and worse as we moved into early 2023. There were 27% fewer homes listed for sale in February, up from 25% fewer in, in January. So there is no real clear path. Now, I think 
builders are going to help. The fact that we've started to see transaction volumes bottom out and buyer sentiment uh, return and the fact that we've seen buyers willing to return to the market when rates have fallen, I think you're going to see some builders kind of uh, dip their toes back into the water here in those types of volumes rise. But the lifeblood of the housing market is really those existing home sellers. And until we see a meaningful rebound there, we're going to be in a challenging inventory environment. All right. Uh, Diana, uh, we're going to give the last word to you here. There have been a lot of interesting reports about where we are seeing some of the biggest increases in prices versus decreases, the hot and cold markets. In just a few moments here, what's the most intriguing market dynamic to watch for in the coming months? Well, I think, as you said, we're seeing the hottest of the hot markets cool the most, and then we're seeing the most affordable markets gain in price. And that's the Midwest. And of course, we're seeing Miami. That's just a whole nother story. It's just going to keep going higher. But what's interesting to me is these affordable markets, the Pittsburghs, the Clevelands, the markets we don't think about so much. How many more people are going to start moving there because they are so much more affordable and push prices higher? All right. Diana Oleg, thank you very much for that. Andy Walden as well for the state of play in real estate. We appreciate it. Well, that does it for us here on The Exchange. What you're going to see right now on Power Lunch, three names to buy in the face of a recession, including one regional bank. And there, of course, is Tyler and Contessa, the Countess, getting ready for Power Lunch. It starts after this. Keep it right here. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.